All right, welcome everybody to another edition of Legal Tech Week, the show where we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation from the past week, or possibly the last two weeks this time, because we weren't around last Friday. Uh, and I am Bob Ambrogi. I uh, write the blog Lost Sites and also have the podcast Law Next and the legal tech directory called directory.lawnext.com. Check it out. And uh, our panelists this week, as you see them before you, uh, starting from what I see as the upper left, Steve, that would be you. Hi, Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads and I'm also chair of the ABA Law Practice Division this year. All right, and Nikki. My name is Nikki Black. I am the uh, Senior Director of SME and External Education in my case, and I write legal tech columns for um, ABA Journal above the law, uh, the Daily Record, and I also um, author some uh, benchmark and legal industry reports on the my case side of things. All right, Victor. Hi, everyone. Victor Lee from ABA Journal. I'm Assistant Managing Editor for the Business of Law and Technology. Um, it, it, it's going to take me a while to get used to Nikki's new title because um, at the journal, we've had debates over whether or not we should actually refer to her by her old title, which was tech evangelist. A, a lot of people claim they're like, there's no way that's a real thing. I'm like, no, it's a real title. That's actually on her card. I'm like, no, 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 we're not, we're not going with that. So, uh, so thanks, Nikki. Thanks, 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 thanks for making our life more difficult. Yeah. I can't get used to I it. Either. I like the old, I like the old title so much better, but nobody but, knew what I did. It was so nebulous. I still don't know what you do with the new ones. <laughs> All right, all right, fine, fine. Um, and Stephanie. Um, yeah, my title is easy. Um, I am the, I'm Stephanie Wilkins. I'm the editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News at ALM. All right, so uh, in the news this week, uh, well, actually, I, we might want to just, I don't know, we were just talking about it a little bit, but quickly debrief. I, I think Stephanie and I were the only ones who went to Relativity Fest last week. And the reason we didn't have a show last week is because we were probably both traveling uh, out of Relativity Fest in Chicago. But uh, uh, I don't know, Stephanie, any quick impressions? Uh, what did you think of that conference? Uh, well, it was my first Relativity Fest, so I don't really have a basis of comparison. But I mean, I thought it was really well done. They obviously put a lot of effort into it. Um, I personally have, you know, a soft spot for all of the more social justice aspects of legal tech. And I thought they did a really good job of highlighting a lot of that from the human trafficking documentary to, you know, they're closing keynote with Dr. Tinnick uh, Brew and just a lot of the non-traditional, um, I guess the non-strictly traditional legal uses of the technology I enjoyed. And of course the panel that Bob and I were on, I've <laughs> told was a huge hit. <laughs> yeah, we did a panel on the, the state of the union, uh, whatever that means, uh, but uh, that was fun. Um, yeah, it actually was interesting that they did so much focus on uh, on human rights issues and, and other kind of social issues, ways that their technology is being used. Um, uh, I, I did an interview with uh, somebody, uh, and I think Joe is not here, sat in with me on the interview with some people from the Georgia Innocence Project who are using mm -hmm. Relativity's technology for free from Relativity to basically go through, they've got a backlog of something like 6,000, you know, letters they receive from people asking, take my case, take my case. Um, and, uh, you know, they just can't humanly review all of that. And, and uh, so they're, they're basically using this, you know, e-discovery review software to go through and review all of these petitions and not, I guess, not so much to kind of surface single cases 
directly, but but look for patterns in these cases that could suggest the cases that they want to talk about. Uh, you know, they're talking about like they've noticed, for example, that there's like a particular county in Georgia that a whole lot of these wrongful conviction cases seem to be coming out of, uh, or there, you know, there are patterns in terms of law enforcement officers involved or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. Yeah, the pattern recognition aspect of it was really what led to the human trafficking case that was the subject of the documentary. I wrote up about it. I actually interviewed them and privately to hear about how all that happened. And just the fact that they're using these pattern recognition softwares for these other purposes is great. And their whole uh, Justice for Change partnership is focused on different things. And it's like you said, Bob, they give for these particular cases, they give them the software to use for free to let the lawyers or the vendors or whoever is using it help these causes or these you know, these litigants that wouldn't otherwise really like a lot of David versus Goliath situations. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that I found interesting about the conference, and I, this wasn't even so much my observation as I saw other people talking about this on Twitter, was uh, you hardly ever heard the word e-discovery at this e-discovery conference. Uh, you know, for a product that started as uh, as an e-discovery tool, and that is still the most, you know, probably by far the most widely used e-discovery technology out there, they don't talk about themselves as an e-discovery company anymore. Now, you know, they're they're talking about themselves as as a platform for all sorts of other things, and you know, and but uh, I, I thought that was really kind of interesting. As a matter of fact, there was one point of think at which. One of the uh, somebody at one of the speakers kind of mentioned e-discovery and then kind of backtracked and, and changed the way they had phrased whatever it was they had said. I forget exactly what it was, but um, anyway. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we uh, I kind of think we ought to start with having we we we. Uh, having sent our intrepid reporter into the metaverse this week to explore the court system there. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nikki, what did you find uh, going off into the metaverse? So, I mean, give, give us some background. I mean, you've kind of been really exploring this for the last couple of weeks or so. For like a week because here's my goggles because Dennis Kennedy, who's here today a couple shows ago, um, suggested that I might like the metaverse more than I think I would. And <laughs> with, you know, um, one of the veteran legal tech, you know, when a veteran legal tech person suggests that to me, I jumped right on it. So I immediately bought my goggles within a few days. <laughs> Didn't take much. And uh, I've been getting my uh, uh, metaverse, um, what do you call it? Like a metaverse legs for lack of a better word. It definitely makes you sick in the beginning. Um, but so initially I was just trying to figure it out. And once I sort of figured it out and discovered a few virtual worlds, I tried to see, you know, is there a law firm here? And I did find a law firm, um, a very generic law firm. There was no one in it, but it even had a bathroom. And I went into the bathroom and you could turn the water on. So there is a generic law firm in Horizons World, which is um, Facebook's version of a virtual world. Um, and then <clears throat> I discovered something called Metacourt. And I went to that a couple of days ago and it, it, court was not in session. I thought it was just another sort of dead, um, you know, just a holding place that someone had created that was looked like a court. And then yesterday, I uh, last night, I stumbled into Metacourt and court was in session and it was a very different experience. There were about 40 people there at least. And <clears throat> there's a court with a judge and then there's jury, bo uh, jury box, two witness boxes. And then there's tables for the defense and the plaintiffs. And, uh, when, and then there's um, a barrier. 
So if you are behind the barrier in the peanut gallery, you cannot, uh, uh, they cannot hear you. So everyone up behind the barrier, like the actual court session, everybody can hear them, but they can't hear you if you're in the peanut gallery, like sitting there watching court. Um, and you can't get by that barrier unless they give you permission. So when I arrived, there was a trial going on and I've since learned that apparently they create scenarios and they discuss them ahead of time and then they have them ready for each court session and the people that participate volunteer to participate everyone rushes up when the door opens to try to get in there to participate in the court session and so everyone when i got there had already been assigned to their court sessions to their positions there's a stenographer who sits there the whole time and does this and occasionally reads back the record when people ask for it because people ask for it there's a bailiff there's a judge who seemed to have a decent amount of legal knowledge. There were a bunch of jurors, and then there were um, counsel for each side and the plaintiff and defendant each as well. And the particular case <clears throat> had something to do with, um, there was some video that was at issue. And <clears throat> at one point they asked um, if, and the, the judge managed his court proceedings quite well. And they asked if someone would be the expert witness um, a, a cybersecurity analyst. <clears throat> so I raised my hand and so I was the cybersecurity analyst. I went up there and sat in the jury box and um, the uh, attorney came up to me and asked me to take a look at a video and let me know if it had been altered. But I wasn't <laughs> sure what I was supposed to say because I didn't have enough of a background. So I asked, is, you know, who submitted this into evidence? And the judge told me um, that it was the other, <clears throat> the, was my uh, the person questioning me. And um, so I said, oh, it doesn't look like it's been altered. And everyone erupted, like the whole, everyone in the front of the thing. And then the judge is like, oh, I told her wrong. It was the other side that admitted it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, it's clearly been altered. And everyone's like, oh. <laughs> like, so the judge turns to the jury and says, you are to disregard the prior testimony. That was my fault. And you're only to listen to the testimony she just provided. <laughs> <It was> <laughs> like actually giving them like legitimate instructions and but so it's hysterical and then uh the case concluded and i don't remember who won and then they opened it up for the next case and it was like a stampede to get into the box so that people could participate and a little bit after that i left but it was hysterical how how um prepared they were how familiar some of them were with some of the proceedings and then um it was just fun. Like it, sometimes you go into the metaverse and you end up in a room, like a place where there's not a lot of people or everyone's awkward and they're new because there was a structured format and a plan and a goal. It was a ton of fun to be involved in this thing and watch what was happening. Um, so <clears throat> I thought that was fabulously, I thought it was really interesting. And I think that overall, just the interaction in the metaverse, I think there's actually a ton of potential, even though Facebook's getting a lot of, um, uh, negative press about it right now. I think in a quarter or two, you're going to see the numbers completely flip on their head. It just takes a while for people to get them um, on board, especially with the new pro goggles coming up, but they're very expensive. But so anyway, I, I'm glad I'm diving in. And I think there's a lot of legal implications, which I wrote about in my article, getting back to what I actually am talking about here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's just like social media was back in the day. You know, you need to understand it um, because there are actual people there interacting. And there is evidence being generated <clears throat> that's going to need to be obtained and analyzed. And there are also quite possibly, you know, tortious things happening there down the road, like litigation can happen. And you can also potentially set up shop. And I would suggest like almost like a web intake portal for now so that people can at least approach your firm 
and submit a you know intake form so you know they're interested in talking to you about this your services. So I think there's a ton of potential there, and I think it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. So that that's my report from the from the metaverse. <laughs> Everybody speechless. No, I love it. I, yeah, no, I would love to try it. I'd be curious to see if it actually has an application down the road. And even though you said there could be tortious things going on there, because you know there's already been claims of you know, virtual sexual assault in the metaverse and things like that. So it's while it is fun, and I really would love to join you in one once I'm one sometime because I think that's really fun. Like I don't know how. It'll be curious to see if anyone could figure out how to make it actually work. Yeah, I mean, we did like uh, uh, we did an article about this where we looked at some of the legal issues, and obviously, it's like, yeah, you, you have the you have the you have the assault issues. There's like possible defamation issues. Like, if my avatar says something bad about somebody, like what happens? And IP issues obviously are really a big deal because of like all the logos and stuff. They want to make it look like a real place. Um, but yeah, I mean, like like I I I spoke with a, on the Legal Rebels podcast uh, with Legal Talk Network. I spoke with um, a lawyer who set up shop in the in the metaverse, and I think right now it's still very much still kind of like. I mean, he's using it more for like, you know, for marketing and for, uh, and actually there was a, there was a, there was a um, practical use of it. And we talked about it on the show like, way back when, when it happened, like uh, when it happened during, like when the, during the pandemic, when things were still shut down, mm -hmm. it, there was a way for people to, um, you know, get together and, um, you know, meet, meet up with, meet, you know, meet somewhat face to face and like, and like, you know, provide, provide um, advice and that kind of stuff. So it was a, it was a service for his clients too, but I'd be curious to see where it goes. Like, um, you know, I mean, the uh, it, it seemed like the the um, uh, the court stuff was more just for fun, but at some point, yeah, it would be interesting to, to see like a, an actual trial unfold and see how it goes. Well, at the very least, you can you can, you can see how hearings, you know, perfunctory kind of hearings that you know their motion hours and all that could be done that way. I know that uh, there's that lawyer in California, um, Mitch Jackson, and he's written a lot of stuff and big proponent of it. Um, I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, Nikki, but I'm going to your court experience. <laughs> what, I just so what a, a what couple are, videos of um, Metacourt, and I sent it to you guys by email. I can put the links in the um, chat after uh, I'm the segment's done so people can take a look at them if they want. So, But I, Nikki, I know you're always concerned about privacy and about track data tracking and data privacy. What, how do you feel about the fact that everything you do in the metaverse is being tracked by Facebook and used to sell products for you? Well, I, I think that right now it absolutely needs to be recorded, which is one thing that they do, because I can't tell you how many 11 and 12 year olds, one of them put me in a private party, like with an 11 year old. I'm like, I don't want to a private party. And they're just like these kids want, there's a ton of kids just wandering around in there talking to grownups. And I'm glad it's being recorded because, you know, and then they're sad when you leave, because I think they're just bored and they just want someone to hang out with them and be nice to them. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunities for predators there. So I think right now it needs to be recorded. The issue of <clears throat> tracking and using it to market to you, that's a very different issue. Um, but I mean, I think yeah. at this point it's just inevitable. Yeah, I'm not just talking about recording. I'm not just talking about recording what happens there, but the, the idea, I mean, from yeah. what I've read, they're tracking things like what attracts your, what kinds of things draw your attention? What are you looking at? How do you respond to different things? And, and they're using that all as you know, potential data to help drive so, sales and so, advertising. So Bob, how is that different than real life? Right. <laughs> it's not, well, it's not any different than what Facebook is doing already. Exactly. I mean, I feel like at this point, they already, they've got such strong profiles on all of us, unless you literally don't use the internet, um, that it, it's just part of the buy-in for any kind of electronic online interaction. I, 
that's just the price you pay. You are the product, right? I think so. Yeah, it's but you're inevitable. it's you're more the product when you're in an immersive environment where you can interact with people in a way that you know goes beyond what you can do through Facebook communications or something. I think I don't I don't know. Um, I agree. I think it's just uh, you know you sign the terms of uh, use and you sign away your rights and that's the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to be in there, that's the price you're paying. Right. I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, so. Um, when, when we were talking about this in our pre uh, pre webinar chatter, Stephanie said, well, gee, we ought to do a panel in the uh, metaverse one day. And we actually did do a virtual reality version of this show once, uh, which was a lot of fun. And uh, anybody who missed it, there's the link in the chat if you want to go back and see it. But we were that was part of uh, um, was it the ILTA not ILTA conference? It was uh, Mary Max. Uh, ASUD's conference, I think, one year. I think they, it was the Monroe County Bar because I watched a little bit of it. it that's was, it. That's what it was. That's what it was. My bar County Bar. That's what it was. Yeah, that's right. It was your bar. That's yeah. right. Mary Mack did one, something like that too. That yeah. But it, but it was the Monroe County Bar. That's right. Because now that when you look at the video, you see the big MCBA in the background. So that's right. Um, all right. Well, that's all we have to say on the metaverse. We're sure we're going to fill out the entire hour just talking about that, but that's okay because there's lots of other stuff to talk about. Um, uh, Victor, you you had an interesting story this week that uh, kind of echoes uh, some themes that we've hit on a few times uh, here in the past. But uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so, kind of, kind of, kind of in relation to the Alex Jones thing. Um, so uh, this, this this kind of falls into the category of, you know, know how to use your technology, especially if you're a lawyer, because you never know what could happen if you turn something over and or that you shouldn't or, you know, uh, in this case, it wasn't a lawyer that, that gave away the entire hard drive. It was a Dropbox links, links that they forgot to um, deactivate or they forgot to or, or they just forgot to let expire or whatnot. So basically, um, this was a I, I mean, uh, I think this was originally re reported by Politico, but um, one one way that um, there was a uh, hold on, let me just put it in the in the in the chat here. Everyone so yeah. have it. So basically, what it was was that um, um, John Eastman, who's a lawyer, uh, one of the one of the one of the um, one of the lawyers who was uh, on, on Trump's on Trump's side and trying to come up with this scheme of uh, you know all kinds of ways to kind of you know decertify or question or call the election call the 2020 election into legitimacy or things like that um he's being investigated by by the january 6th committee and 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 also by i think i think by, by by grand juries as well and so what happened was um his lawyer his lawyer um based on this reporting uh did not know that a dropbox links was still, was still active giving giving the um Giving giving people access to all this, this the, all all these emails and letters and stuff, which um, you know was all these emails, letters, and things like that, which which were able to then you know link him and and, and various people to uh, to parts of the of January sixth. And so you know, I mean, obviously there's there's you know obviously you know like you know we're seeing more states and jurisdictions requiring training and technology and training uh, knowledge of 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 technology and competence in that area and whatnot and this this might be a good way to kind of maybe force people to to, to take it more seriously i mean you know um it, it's one it's one thing to uh to, to do it accidentally but 
it's one it's one thing to just to, to, to do it in the litigation field where you know you you have you have ways of clawing stuff back and being able to pull things back and like and, and make things privileged after the fact but you know in, in a case like this where you know it's it it, it, it goes to the january 6 committee and there's maybe there's not that same level of of it's not like a litig ongoing litigation and there's you know maybe there's the rules are a little bit murkier like like you know obviously then there could be serious consequences and, and it looks like there might be yeah i feel like there was um i feel like there was even i was trying to find it i couldn't find it i feel like there was an ethics opinion at some point related to this issue because there was a um there was something something that came up a few years ago very similar in context where the lawyer basically forgot that they were sharing a particular dropbox folder with other people and started putting stuff in there that was not 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 like this case not uh uh implicating uh significant uh confidential information or something but that was embarrassing uh frankly uh or, or personal anyway uh and uh, it's so easy to lose track of things that you shared and what and, and who you shared them with and uh, it's a good reminder to just kind of go in and check yeah. all of your folders every so often and see about that yeah and especially yeah. a program like dropbox like i mean like you know I, I guess depending on what on what on what program you use like you never know what the you never know what the protocols are. You never know what the policies are. You know, maybe maybe some things expire like immediately, or there's an automatic expiration thing on them. But some of them, maybe you have to change the settings and make it so that so that you know you disable it um, once 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 you're done sharing it. So you you know you have, you always have to be careful with what you use. Make sure you understand the rules and make sure you understand that you know not everything is just gonna just just happen automatically. Sometimes you might have to go in and actually change the settings or make it make it so that you know that. The stuff isn't going to get shared accidentally. Yes, somewhat, somewhat relatedly, I think the um, ABA came out with a formal opinion maybe this past week on the reply all issue, and uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. I haven't read it, but it seemed to say that if if I hit reply all to a email that Bob sends to me and Bob copied his client, I'm not really creating an ethical violation by contacting Bob's client. Um, which I guess makes sort of practical sense, but uh, but it's the same yeah, kind, I, of, kind of issue in some ways. Yeah, I did write about that one uh, just this morning, as a matter of fact. I'll put that post up. But I, I, I uh, it, it was an it was an interesting opinion. It was you, you kind of wonder why that doesn't the ethics ABA standing committee on ethics have anything more important to talk about than reply alls on uh, emails, but. Um, it it I actually, uh, yeah, it happens. Oh, I mean, no, I, I know what happened. Yeah, yeah. I know people have been fired for like, uh, I know someone who got fired for replying all and saying bad things about people on that all chain that they mm -hmm. shouldn't have because they thought it was just going to the one person. So yeah, it, it, it's definitely an issue. Yeah. I mean, the issue in this case was if, if I'm a lawyer and I'm emailing my opposing counsel and I copy my client on the email, then if that lawyer hits reply all to respond to me, is that other lawyer somehow doing something unethical by com contact by communicating directly with my client because they're not supposed to do that but and you know the aba opinion says no because the the lawyer who sent the email it was their their yeah. fault basically that, that this communication chain started that way uh, apparently there have been some state ethics boards that have decided the issue the opposite way uh, but it's like I, I as i said in my post i feel like so many of these issues that come down in the world of legal ethics are just like common sense, like 
just think about it before you do it and you probably wouldn't do it. I mean, why do you even necessarily want to copy your client on an email to your opposing counsel? If, if you want the client to see the email, then forward it to them after you send it, but don't copy them on it. You never know and, what's, what's going to get come back in return. And I think that's why, I mean, the way I was reading the ABA thing was that it was, they didn't even get to the issue of, is it ethical for then you to reply and reach out? It was more so just the lawyers being like, don't be dumb and reply all with your clients on it like just right. nip that problem in the bud because it shouldn't really be a problem at this point in right. time <laughs> right yeah yeah don't don't be dumb rule 1.1 of the ethics don't be dumb i mean you could say that about <laughs> dropbox also but you know <laughs> yeah right exactly right yeah um well uh let's see uh all right uh S steve you wrote about uh some very well-paid uh, lawyers uh, this, <laughs> yeah. this, this week. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's true. They're the uh, major Lindsay and African Law 360 survey of partner compensation. And of course, the big headline everybody picked up on was that partners made a hell of a lot of money last year, um, which I guess they did. Um, but there's some other interesting things in there that uh, are a little bit, as, as Jeffrey Brandt scolded me on, I got a little off the trail, but picked some of them up. But uh, one of them was a, it was an economic issue. Um, you know, most of the increase in compensation likely came from increased revenues due to increased work, uh, which is really all well and good. But then you look at the the rate increases in 2021, and it, and it was about 5% on average, which if that were true in 2022, is certainly not going to keep track with inflation, uh, which could signal some additional you know, cost-cutting measures that would be in order and maybe we're already seeing that the other thing i thought was interesting was the origination credits that uh or originations that uh the, the people who responded noted and those were only slightly up um from the previous year and so you know the old adage is you know when you when a lawyer is really really busy they spend their time working in, on business development and that that seemed to be the case uh here. So it could be setting the firms could be setting themselves up for a difficult year next year. And of course, hell hath no fury like a partner who makes less in year two as they did in year one. <laughs> it's a very difficult uh, situation management wise. The other sad thing that I've noticed in it is the, is, is the gap between men and, and women partners. While it's, you know, everybody was sort of patting themselves on the back that it wasn't as much as it has been 34% pay gap is that's pretty significant. When you start putting real numbers on that, you know, you, you see, you know, $34,000 or less if a partner, if a male partner makes a hundred, then female partner doing roughly the same work. I mean, you can't, there's no way to distinguish you know, how they're different. Um, they make 66,000 and it just, uh, I mean, it's a very sad commentary when, when overall in the in the income universe, the the gap is is not as great as three four percent. It's averages around twenty percent, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. But uh, you know, I just think it's you know, for a profession that prides itself on sense of justice. There's just no excuse for that. Um, the other thing that I thought was was really interesting, compensation wise, was that partners in open compensation systems, systems where they know what all of their partners are, are, are going to make, 
across uh, uh, as a whole did better compensation-wise than those enclosed systems. And the only thing I can figure from that is that you know the, having all your partners know exactly what you're being compensated kind of keeps the system honest and precludes you know the the big ogre in the corner from raking in all the profits and leaving the crumbs to everybody else. That's the only thing I can figure about it. But I thought it was I'd never focused on that or noticed a survey that focused on that before. So so all of those things I thought were. Uh, are pretty interesting and you know have don't necessarily have anything to do with the fact that partners made a lot of money last year which of course they did but <laughs> so it was, it was an interesting survey I, uh, I thought one, one thing that i find interesting about that also is the ramifications of women earning less so if you know you're earning less and you know you're getting screwed by your law firm which i think most women tend to understand that's happening um and that's oftentimes the reason that women will leave law firms when they have children um, or else they know they're not going to get a fair shake once they have the kid or else they start right. to get reduced assignments or whatever the case may be. And then I think one thing that happens too that isn't always talked about is if you leave the law for just two or three years, the effect, and then you get back into the workplace, the effect that that can have on your um, retirement account, you know, it's, and how right. far behind you end up being. I mean, that happened to me. I left for two and a half years when my kids are really little. And um, my husband's retirement accounts are significantly higher than mine because for those two and a half years, he was contributing uh, to his retirement account and it was getting matched by his employer. And I've been playing catch up ever since. I mean, I think at this point I've exceeded what he has, but those two and a half years and that um, uh, compounding interest that I would have had, you know, I've lost all of that. And I think it happens to a lot of women. Um, and you also lose the money being paid into social security too, unless you make up for that. So there's all these other ramifications of that type of um, inequality that happens that women suffer. Yeah, yeah it's, you know, that they, they, they you can never catch up. I mean, it's, it's back to life. And the other thing that the survey noted was that, that men's originations are significantly higher than women, and which is also a sad commentary because either one of two things are happening, either the, the origination rules within the firm are, 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 are rigged toward men uh, and not, not, you know, not we're going to pay men more kind of, or we're going to get with more origination credits. But the way those rules often work is they favor those with credits and those are working for those with credits. So either that's happening or the the uh, hiring by in-house counsel and and businesses is is geared toward toward men. So you know a white male in-house counsel typically will hire a white male lawyer who will get the origination. So therefore, men's originations are higher. And uh, either one of those is a sad commentary. I don't think you can lay it at the feet and say, well, women just aren't good business developers because that's not obviously that's not true. Um, so it's it's a lot of like you're saying, Nikki, a tremendous amount of ramifications from that. That you know, it's not just oh, we're doing we're doing marginally better this last year, so we should all be happy. I don't think that's a good attitude at all. I think it's like oh my God, it's still as bad as it ever was, kind of thing. It all strikes me as kind of profane. I mean, the the, the some of these partners are just making so much money, uh, and that and that women are still getting paid so much less than men in law. I just don't understand it. Uh, does the report offer any clues as to why this is? Oh, other than the origination credit. Yeah. Issues. So that's, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. And, you know, another piece of it was a comparison of equity and non-equity partners. And, um, you know, you see a, a big discrepancy in compensation there. And, you know, the survey didn't go into this, but I would not be surprised to see that that there are more women non-equity partners than maybe even men. Um, right. There definitely for, are. That's typically the track that women get pushed into because... Uh, they're unable to be rainmakers, especially when they have younger children. So they get pushed into this non-equity thing where they're doing the actual work, meaning I know that the practicing law encompasses all different aspects of work, but the, the grind, you know, the, the research, right. the writing, you know, but not the glory, you know, they're never in right. court. They're never arguing. They end up just doing all this work that makes the cases move forward. Um, and they get stuck into that oftentimes. So they can't even get out there and do rainmaking because they end up just in the office all day long and never get out of it. So it absolutely, yeah. other studies I've read that absolutely say that women are primarily the non-equity partners these days in most of these firms. Like, yeah. I don't know the exact percentage, but. Yeah, we're, we're talking stats. big for, yeah, go ahead. I don't know the stats either, um, but you not as women versus men, I feel like within the, the global sphere of women partners, so many of them are non-equity as opposed to equity, even if you look mm -hmm. at just the women for exactly the reasons Nikki was saying. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think, I, th I think it's interesting because it's like, you know, obviously whenever we, whenever we, you know, look at these stats or whenever we get like a press release or whatever, or, or, or something about that, it's always like, oh, you know, the, the number of, the number of, of, of partners went up, you know, it's like, all right, but were they equity partners or non-equity partners? That, that's, right. it's, 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 it's the devil's in the details, right? Or, but it's always like, oh, well, you know, we promoted this many people. We, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, our, our incoming class is the most diverse we've ever had, blah, blah, blah. But nobody ever talks about the origination credit stuff. Like, oh, we 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 reformed our origination credit policy so that it's more equitable. Because, well, A, 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 I think a lot of people don't really understand that because uh, it's easy to just try out numbers and be like, oh, well, you know, half of our class is this or, you know, a third of our class is this or blah, blah, blah. Or we have this many first chairs. We have this many people on the leadership committee. We have, we, we, we hired a chief diversity officer and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, nobody ever talks about the origination credit. So it's kind of like, yeah. well, yeah, is, is it because people don't really know what it is and it's kind of boring and, you know, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle or is that the way to kind of keep things the way they are? While still well, it's, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, origination credits in large part in most firms govern compensation. You know, the person that brings in the most business. And then that's not necessarily conceptually unfair, right? I mean, you're bringing in dollars to the business, so maybe you should get paid more. But the problem is that the, 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 the rules for determining who gets those credits can be so arcane and so biased that they favor people that are powerful with large origination credits and those that work for those partners. So that you move up, you ratchet up and in uh, the hierarchy and ultimately become partner. And you may be grandfathered into a bunch of origination credits that you may or may not have been in an equitable world entitled to, which tends to favor white men. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I think that's why I think when, you know, you asked about, you know, what the reason for it is, I think that's squarely an origination um, uh, issue. Um, yeah. So. And of course, we're, we're talking about the world of big law firms, not right. small law firms. That's here. right. So right. it'd be interesting to know what what kind of trends had been, uh, billing trends had been uh, in small law firms. Although I think the Clio survey had some data on that. And I don't know if you're, Nikki, I know you were working on a survey for my case. I don't know if that had any data on that. But I think overall, it was showing that billings were up for uh, smaller firms too. Mm -hmm. Didn't so. break it down um, by firm size in terms of that information. So I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Stephanie, you had a couple of stories this week, which, what, what do you want to talk about? Oh, um, we can do the streamline AI one. The other one was just a Q and A with Judge Schlegel about virtual courts, just sort of contrasting to Nikki's um, metaverse courts, but that's just, yeah. I know some of you experienced that court in person before. That was just sort of a last minute add on that I thought of, cause that just coincidentally came out today. Um, but yeah, streamline AI, speaking of women in law in legal tech, <laughs> um, Kathy Zhu and, um, and her new venture with the no code intake platform with um, Julian Wimbush. Uh, yeah, they got a lot of funding, including uh, Wilson Sonsini investment. Um, and it seems to be, it's still amazing to me that there are these areas of, I mean, something like intake is such a basic part of a case of a matter yet still so important that I feel like a lot of people might've focused on the bigger later aspects of it. And then it took till now for somebody to do a no code streamlined intake platform. Yeah. And to be clear, they're talking about intake within, within legal departments, right? Not law yes. firms. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Legal departments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like a really interesting idea. Uh, it's, it's funny how some of the, uh, so some of the more interesting innovations are happening within legal departments these days rather than in law firms. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, but um, I didn't I didn't get a chance to fully read the I read it quickly. But what what exactly what are they what are they doing with it? What how are they? Uh, what what's the thrust of the product? Oh, well, I mean, the one of the big focuses is that I mean, I can't I haven't tried it out and, and compared it, but that, that it really is no code as opposed to you know there's a lot of pushback about is no code really no code or is it just right a little bit of code and they claim it's you know really no code and it's just i just just a lot about her how her experience at doordash where she just had no processes for all of these you know putting all the contracts together the agreements and all of it every single time a transaction would come up and she just finally was decided they needed to all be in one place and it just i mean it's not really even that nuanced it seems fairly obvious but right. clearly not obvious enough that anyone had done it before yeah, there's just like a huge gap in the market that people were overlooking on terms of because there was, you know, there's dedicated CLM, there's contracting solutions, there's building, there's all the different aspects of containing and running a matter within the legal department, but actually bringing it all together to start the matter in the first place. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that there's so many more of these products for the legal departments coming um, to fruition. And I think part of it is that. Uh, um, and I don't know quite as much about this space, so correct me if I'm wrong, others on the um, panel, but, you know, the, the companies, you know, corporations are getting tired of paying outsourced legal fees, you know, outside counsel, because they're so expensive, they're, um, and they have these outlandish bills, and so they're starting to build these firms out within their companies, rather than having to outsource a lot of this legal work, and as these more and more firms get built into all these different companies, they need more and more processes to because uh, they're handling more work and they have more people handling it. And so they actually have these like firms within the companies that need, but their, their needs are different than a traditional firm because, <laughs> you know, they're um, working for a company and handling a whole assortment of different types of areas of practice, but all within that same one firm rather than having practice groups and these large law firms and, and the intake's different. And so their needs are just very different. And I think that um, as that trend grows and increases, the need for software to um, support that legal work tends to increase. And so that maybe that's my hypothesis. Definitely not my space. No, I think you nailed it. I think you're right. You're spot on with that. Yeah. 
Well, and especially now, a thing she brought up when she was talking to us about it is, you know, a lot of people now with this, everyone keeps talking about an impending recession and is now the time to start a legal tech startup or create a product. And she's like, in a place like, in a situation like this, where something like intake, there is so much work to do and you're getting fewer and fewer resources and constantly being asked, as someone said in the comments, to do more with less. Now is the perfect time for that particular kind of product to launch because it's going to fill that gap when you don't have the workforce to do it and clients don't want to pay for it. Or, or I mean, nobody wants to pay for this kind of work. I saw I always yeah. default to law firm brain. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, the question in the. Yeah, there's a question um, to hosts and panelists. That one. Yeah. Might do you want to wanna read it or do you want? You can Go read ahead. it. Okay. <laughs> it says, do you foresee a decrease in legal operations hiring and initiatives due to the recession? I, I think the answer is it depends, but not really, because <laughs> when a recession hits, just different types of practice areas um, spin up and take them in a lot more business like bankruptcy and uh, that type of thing. But um, again, I'm not 100 percent sure. What do you guys think? I was also going to say cool. I was. Oh, I was going to also say it depends because everyone, as far as I can tell, currently defines legal ops a little bit differently and it looks different in every organization. So I don't even know what legal ops hiring, if there is a uniform thing for that. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what Stephanie said. I mean, I think that if, yeah, if you define it as like, okay, this legal ops, we're going to use legal ops to like, you know, yeah, it depends what, it depends what, you, what you use it for, right? If you use it to, uh, you know, to run your to, to run your business more efficiently, then yeah, you could definitely see how that 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 you know that would be useful during a during recession when there's less money coming in and, and whatnot. Like you definitely want to make yourself more efficient and being able to do more with less resources and whatnot. So that that I could see. But like if you define legal ops as sort of like you know differently and 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 you know then and you run the risk of yeah like like um of of not having enough not having enough resources or having to spend too much money on stuff then yeah, I could definitely see that part of it then, then um, um, going, you know, going away or contracting. I mean, it, it really, is, yeah, it, it's really kind of in the details and like, and of course, look, there'll be some companies that, that just cut across companies and flaw firms and whatnot. They just cut, cut across the board and they don't care like what, they don't care like what you do or what, what, what you bring to the table. So I, 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 I think, yeah, it all depends. Yeah. yeah I'm I an think, expert on this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, oh, go ahead. That's okay. I was going to say I'm not an expert on this either, but that didn't stop me from recently chairing a uh, a panel <laughs> a panel on this very topic uh, of legal ops hiring and career opportunities for above the law. Um, and uh, I mean the 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 experts on the panel, uh, not me, but uh, I mean their thought was pretty much what what Victor just said, which is that you know in 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 tougher times or leaner times, there's a greater need for efficiency, a greater need for enhancing operations, uh, and that uh, you know uh, that alone can mean more opportunities for legal ops professionals. And then also just that the the that can also put greater pressures on the, the, the recessionary times can put greater pressures on legal departments to do more in-house uh, and and send out less, which again fuels uh, a continuing need for legal ops professionals to to be sort of the back end for all of that work. So it's probably uh, probably not going to lead to uh, cutbacks and opportunities. The the point I was going to make is falling back to the uh, to the study that I wrote about. You know, the, the the biggest increases in compensation to partners was, of course, in mergers and acquisitions. But the second biggest category was litigation. And that's interesting because uh, 
every litigator I talk to these days are just overwhelmed with with work and trials because it's the proverbial pig in the pig in the uh, snake, and so they're all scrambling. Which which means, I mean, that you know, you talk about law firms and lawyers and law firms being efficient or not efficient because of a billable hour model. The one thing that scares them more than losing billable hours is not complying with court deadlines. So if, <laughs> if they have to become more efficient and, and use more efficient means, including legal ops to comply with all these deadlines that they're all facing from multiple trials set, you know, on top of each other to clear out the docket, then I think there will be a greater opportunity. Yeah. And like, and like, and like, you never know. Right. I mean, cause I mean, I think when, when COVID first hit, we thought, oh, well, bankruptcy is going to go through the roof. I mean, you know, so many, so many companies are going to go out of business. So many people are going to have to declare personal bankruptcy or whatnot. And, and, you know, I think there was a little bit of a, of a bump, but not as much as people thought. Um, and part of it, yeah, part of it was government intervention to kind of stave off some of the stuff. Um, and, 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 but, but, you know, but then like, you know, like the economy is complicated, there are all kinds of, there are all kinds of pieces, all kinds of, factors that can swing things one way or the other so you know it, it, yeah it, it's it's i think i think yeah like conventionally you know will there, will there be people that just go into cut mode sure um because that's that, that that's probably all they know how to do and that's always the easiest solution to things right um so but yeah but i think i think yeah like you know i mean if you define legal ops as like a more like kind of a luxury thing that like companies do to kind of make themselves look good and make themselves look like they're going with the times and yeah i can see that that part of it suffering yeah all right um my story this week that I want to talk about was this Filevine news, uh, which which I wrote about. I, I'm sure some of you others uh, wrote about it as well. But the the uh, they they announced you know Filevine is a practice management platform uh, more focused on uh, uh, ten, started out but more focused on on plaintiffs mass tort firms. I think they're trying to they're definitely trying to move beyond that into other markets, including corporate. Uh, but they put out this news this week that they are developing a their own proprietary document format called the .vine format that they say will replace Microsoft Word and Google Docs in the legal industry. Uh, and in fact, there was a, uh, uh, a, 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 a quote from... Uh, you know, the CEO saying this is going to become the new standard for the legal industry, replacing word processors that are ill-equipped Ill for the job. Uh, and uh, a lot of hyperbole in their press release about uh, them becoming the new standard and replacing Microsoft Word and Google Docs. Uh, I, I don't know if this is a, I, I'm still on the fence as to whether this is a bad idea or bad marketing and PR uh, around a good idea. I feel like it's a bad idea for the reasons I, I put in my blog post, only because I, I think you know we're the, the the trend overall in the legal industry is towards uh, more open standards, towards more interoperability, uh, and uh, this seems to be uh, you know putting a stake in the ground around a proprietary format that would go counter to that that trend, uh, and, you know, and then it it sort of makes it sound like it's going to be kind of easy to oust word as as the primary document format which you know it could happen but um it's not going to happen anytime soon and it's it's not going to happen from a a single company that that is itself a practice management company i mean if it was if this was sort of a generic i don't know apple or microsoft kind of a company you know maybe it would have 
more of an opportunity to put forward an, its own proprietary file format. But for, for this to gain the kind of traction they're touting here, it would mean all their competitors would have to adopt their format. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, so I don't know. I, I just, again, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence as to whether they, they, they should just fire their PR firm or, uh, <laughs> or, uh, or, uh, or what, but I don't know. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's certainly ambitious PR, um, but my, <laughs> um, my first reaction was a point that you made in your post, Bob, that was like, even Google couldn't take, take down Microsoft Word, like Google Docs, you can't even really get lawyers to use that. So it's really, really a steep battle to try to, you know, take over Microsoft Word. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe if, if maybe a file vine doesn't think it's smarter than me and change my formatting, maybe I will go for it. But um, because Microsoft Word clearly has all these issues that everyone hates, but somehow they have this stranglehold. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm curious, it's very ambitious. I don't know. I don't know how it would happen, but I'd like to see someone try it. Makes me think a little bit about Apple and Microsoft. I mean, if you look at a lot of lawyers, a lot of lawyers use Apple laptops and tablets, but in their businesses and their law firms and their legal departments, they ain't using iOS. They're using Microsoft as the primary uh, uh, tool. And so, you know, this, the whole and it's, you know, Microsoft offers a whole family, particularly now with teams of, of tools and devices that are all, I, want, I was going to say seamlessly integrated. That might be a bit of an overstatement. Right. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. No, okay. I'm, I, was, I was done. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm as big of an Apple guy as anyone, but like, yeah, I sprang, I sprang for the office. I, I sprang for the office suite, you know, uh, you know, the app store. Cause it's Me just, too. you know, cause yeah. Cause ultimately it's just like, you know, is it, is it the best product that's ever been, been, been made? No, but is it good? Is it good enough to get most things done? Yeah, I think so. And plus we're also used to it. I think that it's just, it's hard to, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to learn anything new, but especially like something like that, where you, you, you just want you just want something that's serviceable. That's going to get the job done. Um, yeah. I, I'm kind of with you on this one, Bob. I feel like it's good to have goals and it's good to sell yourself. Then it's good to not sell yourself short, I guess. But um, yeah, like if you're going to make a bullshit <laughs> like that, and then you come up short or you don't come, in, come even come anywhere close to like making it happen, then I feel like it makes you look bad. And if like, if, if right off the bat, you're talking about, you know, yeah, like, like dethroning, dethroning, like my, like one of the, one of, one of the most obvious like workplace monopolies that we've had in the last, you know, 30 years, like, well, good luck. <laughs> although, I although I am tempted to, to, to reflect on word perfect. And once upon a time, we would all be saying the same things about word. This is Microsoft. They'll never take over this market. Word perfect. So ingrained in blah, blah, blah. blah. Some lawyers still know. Some lawyers still use. Some courts still require work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like what I, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Was that um, what I thought about with this? I think there is room for other word processing tools that are more specific to legal. Um, so, for example, people do still prefer word. Why do they prefer? Because their admins prefer it, and their admins won't switch. Um, also, Scrivener. I don't know if I've written about Scrivener before years ago because I used it uh, to write one of my books, um, and uh, lawyers use Scrivener sometimes because it's a um, program that is uh, much better designed for complex writing. So I had suggested if you're writing a complex summary judgment motion, it's great because you can include all these links at the time. You, it was harder to do that um, uh, online using like word processing. But, you know, Scrivener is really um, uh, not designed for legal writing, but it's great for that. So I think that there is some room 
for other products. I certainly don't think they're going to take over the market. And honestly, I think their biggest hurdle are the admins. You can you can talk about this all you want, but if they don't want to get on board, they're not getting on board unless you're in a really large firm that's going to force the matter. Most of them run the firm in a lot of their own ways, especially the smaller firmies uh, for, as you get into smaller firms. And that's going to be the biggest hurdle is getting administrative assistance to agree to use anything other than what they already know how to use. That's what they're the ones in it every single day, all the time. So it's going to be- that's why, that's why I'm so unclear about whether this is just bad PR because it's they're not really- touting this. Uh, it, it, the, the press release is a little vague, and I haven't had a demo yet. I've got a demo scheduled next week with it at some point, so I haven't seen it yet. But if it, it sort of sounds like they're really, it's really just a document assembly program that they've created here, not a full word processing program. Mm. And, you know, the it's one thing to develop a proprietary format around a document assembly software. It's another thing to say, we're going to oust Microsoft Word and Google Docs. Uh, and and whether the developers of this product, you know, would have phrased it the same way the the press release phrased it is is uh, a question I have in my mind. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what this actually is and how having this. And again, you know, just from the chatter on Twitter, a lot of people say, well, if you look at what they list as the benefits in the press release, you know, you can pretty much do all of that with with other ap applications that are already out there. There's nothing particularly unique about it. So, so we will see, I guess. Now, I'm curious to hear after you try it out what it's like. I totally agree with Nikki that there is definitely room here. And was it was it in? I don't remember if it was actually in the press release or your post that quoted the press release. But I mean, I read both. But it's been a bit where whoever said you know, lawyers shouldn't be preparing their motions in the same software that eighth graders use to write their papers or something like that, which is, you know, completely, I mean, it's a completely valid point, but again, jumping from there to we're going to unseat Microsoft Word is incredibly, possibly a bridge too far. Well, right. I would suggest it's eighth graders use the <laughs> software that lawyers use to send out motions, not the other way around. Word right. wasn't designed for eighth graders. It was designed, her word was designed for complex documents, not a uh, term paper. You know what I mean? But I, but I guess huh. the argument is that by now eighth graders have mastered Word and WordPerfect. So maybe lawyers need something more because the technology has gone farther. Yeah. I don't think there's any question that there's room for a better word processor or there's one that's more suited to the legal industry. And there's, but there are, you know, there are groups out there trying to develop, again, the sort of open source standards around this that would that's create industry wide, not, you know, vendor neutral, industry wide standards. And that seems to be the, the, the approach we would want to take. Well, Stephanie makes a good point about about the eighth graders. I was reading an article a week or two ago that a lot of the law students that are now entering the workforce are not used to, to Microsoft Word. They're using Google Docs and, and those tools, and so they're they're walking into a completely new and different environment. So you know, who knows? I mean, that could could be the harbinger of, of change down the road. Well, so somebody in the chat thinks, okay, I thought bringing up eighth graders was a weird marketing angle, but it worked for you, Stephanie. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I must say, I mean, like it caught my attention. I'm not saying it yeah, sold me on file right. buying it. That definitely, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, the, the, everything and talk about in terms of the PR, it was a little bit all over the board and some of it hit, some of it didn't and probably hit for different people. So I don't know. Yeah, well. Well, uh, maybe by next, uh, maybe when we're back here next week, I'll be able to report on what I've seen, hopefully at this point, because I think I'm going to see it before then. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'm also heading off to the Net Documents uh, conference in Denver 
for the next few days. So uh, I'll also be able to report. I think I'm the, am I the only one of this group that's going to that. I think I am. Um, so uh, until then, uh, hope everybody has a good week. We'll be back here next week. See you all then. Have a good weekend all. Um,